This podcast is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, to obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, ye love in whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. Which things the angels desired to look into? Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear, for as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, 
By him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, to unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. We read God's word this far. Biblical truth, an aspect of the saving work of God in Jesus Christ, that is the subject of this conference, is as important, fascinating, and profitable an element of the gospel as any that we have treated before. This biblical truth is the exhortation, Be ye holy, the reformed doctrine of sanctification. The Bible emphasizes the importance of sanctification. Our sanctification was the purpose of God in electing us in eternity before the foundation of the world. So Ephesians 1 verse 4 informs us, chosen that ye should be holy and without blame before him. The importance of sanctification is evident from the fact that our sanctification was the purpose of Jesus Christ in his suffering on the cross. Quote, for this I sanctify myself, by the death of the cross, of course, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. End of quote. John 17, verse 19. The purpose of the cross was our sanctification. All the way through his prayer in John 17, from which I have just quoted, the concern of Jesus was the holiness of those whom the Father had given him and for whom he was about to give up his life. I quote a few passages from John 17. Keep those whom thou hast given me, verse 11, that keeping is sanctification. Keep them from the evil, verse 15, that's sanctification. Then expressly, sanctify them, verse 17. And then in verse 19, which I have already quoted, the Lord indicates that his purpose with his death was our sanctification. Evidently, the main purpose of Jesus, and therefore of God in the death of Jesus, was our sanctification. That is, that we might be holy. Then to complete the account of the Trinitarian importance of sanctification, 
the outstanding work of the Holy Spirit in salvation is his work of sanctification. The Heidelberg Catechism confesses this importance of sanctification as the outstanding saving work of the Spirit in question 24. There the Catechism analyzes the third part of the Apostles' Creed as teaching God the Holy Ghost and our sanctification. In this way, the Bible corrects an error that we might make of supposing that the main purpose of God in salvation, if not the only purpose of God in our salvation, is our justification. Contrary to that supposition, the Bible teaches that the purpose of God, the ultimate purpose of God with election, redemption, and the work of the Holy Spirit is our sanctification. In this way also, the Bible exposes the heresy of denying that salvation includes, as a fundamental aspect of that salvation, the sanctification of the saved children of God. I'm referring here, of course, to the threatening false doctrine of antinomism, which error we will consider in depth later at this conference. What I, and I am confident my colleague, will teach and defend at this conference is the distinctively Reformed or Presbyterian truth of sanctification. I mention and emphasize the Reformed or Presbyterian teaching of sanctification because the doctrine of sanctification is controversial. It is a truth that has been corrupted by grievous errors. It's worth your remembering and mine that the corruption of the truth of sanctification and in fact the denial of the truth of sanctification was one of the main errors already in biblical days. One of the main errors that the church had to contend with. Think of Jesus' letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor as recorded in Revelation 2 and 3. Those letters expose and condemn false teachings and the resulting unholy practices with regard to sanctification. In fact, it is evident from those letters that denial and corruption of the truth of sanctification was the main error that those letters were concerned with. I mentioned some instances in those letters. The church at Ephesus had left its first love for God in Jesus Christ. And that is the root of all unholiness. And in addition, the church at Ephesus no longer practiced its, quote, first works, end quote. Revelation 2, verses 4 and 5. The church at Pergamos tolerated teachers who held the doctrine of Balaam. That doctrine was instrumental in getting 
the church to sacrifice to idols and to practice fornication, as was the original error of Balaam. Pergamus also tolerated the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which was a teaching that promoted unholiness. Revelation 2, verses 14 and 15. Thyatira, you will remember, had a female preacher who seduced Christ's servants to commit fornication in connection with idolatry. The theology of that Jezebel was that one ought to know, quote, the depths of Satan, end quote, in order to appreciate the heights of salvation. That's Revelation 2, verses 20 and 24. That is an advanced form of antinomism and an advanced form of the corruption of the truth of sanctification. It is really the war cry, let us sin that grace may abound. That was going on already in the time of the apostles in one of the churches formed by the apostles. That indicates how serious a threat is the corruption of the truth of sanctification. Then quickly to refer to two other of those churches, Sardis was dead spiritually. Its works were not perfect. Its members defiled their garments. Revelation 3 verses 1 and 4. Laodicea showed its lukewarmness by its unholy works. Revelation 3 verse 15. Today too, many churches are rebuked, chastised, and judged by Jesus Christ for their wickedness in the matter of sanctification. Many churches today sin by their toleration and even approval of the unholy lives of the membership. They do not practice church discipline. The lack of the practice of church discipline is one of the marks of a false church, and the failure to practice discipline indicates weakness and error with regard to sanctification. In many churches today, there is no discipline of members who go on impenitently in gross, open wickedness. In addition, in the churches today, heresies concerning sanctification abound. And I am referring now to Protestant churches. For one thing, the heresy of Arminianism, the doctrine of salvation by the free will of man, makes good works a condition of salvation. That's a heresy. Besides, the churches in the tradition of John Wesley make sanctification the matter of a dramatic, quote, second blessing, end quote, with its implication of perfectionism. Then there are in the churches today various forms of antinomism. At the very least, there is the teaching that sanctification is not 
a necessary work of salvation for all Christians. In preparing for these lectures, I made myself familiar with the controversy that has been raging in various Baptist churches in North America, known as the Lordship Controversy. Prominent dispensational preachers deny that Christ must necessarily be the Lord of the life of everyone of whom he is the Savior. To put it differently, they teach that Jesus can be one's Savior without being his Lord. By denying the Lordship of Jesus, they mean that one can profess faith in Jesus Christ, but go on living impenitently, even all the rest of his life, until he dies, in open disobedience to one or another of the Ten Commandments of the Law of God, and still be considered to be saved, and still consider himself to be saved. That's a form of the heresy of antinomism. At this conference, as at preceding conferences, I intend to explain and defend the distinctive reformed doctrine of sanctification, convinced as I am that this is the biblical doctrine of sanctification. And at the same time, I consider myself bound to expose and condemn the teachings that deviate from the Reformed or Calvinistic doctrine. That's a necessary warning, and this exposure of false doctrine will also provide a helpful contrast to the truth. We must be clear at the outset as to the reality of sanctification. What do we mean when we confess sanctification as a saving work of God in us. Sanctification is literally making a human being holy. Sanctification is a divine work, a divine work only, and a divine work in its entirety. Sanctification is a work of God from its beginning in regeneration, or the new birth, to its culmination in the resurrection of the body in the day of Jesus Christ. That sanctification is the work of God of making us holy, is the testimony of Scripture and of the Reformed and Presbyterian confessions that faithfully reflect the Scripture. Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17 that He, God, would sanctify all those whom God had given him, that is, given to Jesus, verse 17. And Jesus based this holy divine work not on anything in us for whom he prayed God to sanctify, but this holy divine work is based on Jesus' own sanctification of himself in his death. Verse 19. So our sanctification is God's work, not only in the sense that God performs this work, 
but also in the sense that the reason for it is God's work. God's work of redeeming us in the death of Jesus Christ. That sanctification is God's work is the testimony of the three forms of unity, the confessions of Reformed churches all over the world. At the very beginning of the third part of the Heidelberg Catechism, which third part sets forth the holy life of the child of God, both in obedience to the Ten Commandments, and that's worth emphasizing today, and in our prayer, I say at the very beginning of the third part of the Catechism, the Catechism asks, quote, why must we still do good works, end of quote. The answer is, quote, Christ also renews us by his Holy Spirit after his own image, end of quote. Renewing us is the work of sanctification, and the creed attributes this work to Christ and his Holy Spirit. You and I are renewed. The work is the work of Jesus Christ. The first article of the fifth head of doctrine of the Canons of Dort makes sanctification the work of God upon us and within us. Quote, Whom God calls and regenerates by the Holy Spirit, he delivers also from the dominion and slavery of sin in this life. End of quote. Deliverance from the dominion and slavery of sin is sanctification, and God does it. The Westminster Standards are in agreement in attributing the saving work of sanctification to God. In chapter 13, article 1, the Westminster Confession of Faith states this, quote, they who are effectually called and regenerated are farther sanctified really and personally through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection by his word and spirit dwelling in them. End of quote. According to Westminster, we are sanctified by another, and that other who does the sanctifying is Jesus Christ the Savior. So also the Westminster Larger Catechism in question 75. What is sanctification? Sanctification is a work of God's grace whereby they whom God hath chosen to be holy are in time through the powerful operation of his spirit renewed in their whole man after the image of God, end of quote. That article is replete with instruction concerning sanctification. But I want you to notice one thing, the passive tense. We are renewed. And then notice, the one who does the renewing or sanctifying is God. Not only is sanctification God's work, according to the larger catechism, but it is also a work of his grace. 
It is not therefore a work that we deserve. It is not a work of salvation that depends upon us any more than any aspect of our salvation depends upon us. Sanctification is a work of grace. Necessarily is our sanctification God's work and God's work of grace. Our natural spiritual condition by virtue of our having been conceived as children of Adam is that of total depravity, is that of spiritual death. Our entire nature, body and soul, is corrupt, inclined to hate God and the neighbor, and inclined to all evil. This wickedness of our very nature, what we are, is a bondage, a slavery, a slavery to sin and to Satan. Here we remember the great decisive book by Martin Luther laying bare the fundamental issue of the controversy of the church reformed with the Roman Catholic Church, the bondage of the will. Although the title speaks of the will, the reference is in fact to the entire natural human nature. It is in bondage. It is a slave. The Bible describes the natural spiritual condition of all us humans as a, quote, death unquote, a death spiritual with regard to any and all possibility of being holy and good and performing good works, you and I are dead by nature, by virtue of our natural relation to Father Adam. That's the teaching of the Bible. Not a flattering description, but a truthful description. Ephesians 2 verse 5, quote, When we were dead in sins, God hath quickened us together with Christ, end of quote. And in the verse that immediately precedes, Ephesians 2 verse 4, we read that this quickening or resurrection work of God in us is entirely due to his grace. Not to anything we are, not to anything we do, to deserve this quickening. Quote, God who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, quickened us when we were dead in sins. Dead people do not raise themselves from the dead. Dead people are not capable of even desiring that they be raised from the dead. Slaves cannot free themselves 
People who are depraved totally have no ability to make themselves holy. If we are to become holy, God must accomplish this wonderful work. And God must do it not because of anything in us, but because he is gracious to us. Ephesians 2 verses 4 and 5 teach that sanctification is due to the mercy of God. A rich mercy and to his love, his great love. Rather than to take credit for our own holiness, we should praise and thank God for it. Praise and thank God that we are holy. We should do that all the more because our sanctification is such a precious, glorious aspect of our salvation. And this is a truth about sanctification that I fear that we do not appreciate as we should. That we are justified delivered from the punishment of sin, do not go to hell, that's precious to us. We thank God from the heart for forgiving our sins. But do we have that same ardor with regard to his saving work of sanctification, his deliverance of us from spiritual death, from spiritual slavery and enabling and empowering us to live not to the world and not to ourselves but unto God. I emphasize sanctification is a precious glorious aspect of our salvation. When we read in 1st Peter 1 earlier tonight about God's glorifying of us. The reference was not to what he is going to do in the day of Jesus Christ, at least not primarily, but to what he has already done when he sanctified us. And every day when he sanctifies us anew, he is, in fact, glorifying us. My glory and yours are not our earthly accomplishments. And has nothing to do with the earthly circumstances of our life. We are glorious people in an ugly world. And our glory is precisely this. We are holy by the work of sanctification. Freedom from slavery, slavery to sin, slavery to Satan, freedom to serve an honorable, gracious Lord Jesus Christ. That's precious. That's glorious. Spiritual liberty is priceless. First Peter 1 verse 18 declares that sanctification frees us from our, quote, vain conversation, end quote. The King James translation. That's actually our empty, worthless, shameful, purposeless life that we live and that we would live to the end of that worthless life before we were sanctified 
and depart from our sanctification. What a horrible verdict upon human life. Can you think of anything worse? That you come to the end of this life, even if you're 80 some years old, and the verdict upon it, reflected in your own consciousness is, it was all vain. It was all for nothing. It accomplished nothing. It was worthless. It was purposeless. From that, sanctification has delivered us human beings. That's precious. That's pricelessly precious. Sanctification is resurrection from the dead. A death in sin. A death that ends in eternal death in hell. Sanctification is a resurrection into a life of sweet communion with God, into a life that has its end and goal in everlasting life, in the new world, soul and resurrection body. Sanctification makes beautiful the life that was vile and ugly, makes honorable the life that was shameful, makes worthy the life that was not only worthless, but indeed harmful and destructive, not alone to oneself, but also to one's neighbors, and worst of all, to the manifestation of the glory of God. Rightly, John Owen has written, quote, Among all the glorious works of God, Next unto that of redemption by Jesus Christ, my soul doth most admire this of the Spirit in preserving the seed and principle of holiness in us as a spark of fire in the midst of the ocean against all corruptions and temptations wherewith it is impugned. End of quote. What a robbery of the goodness, grace, and power of the sanctifying God that we would take credit for our holiness. Were we to do that, we would show ourselves unthankful wretches. We would cast doubt on whether we were sanctified at all. As sanctification is necessarily a work of God, so also is sanctification a necessary work of our salvation. Sanctification is included necessarily as an element of salvation. Salvation necessarily consists of the sanctification of the elect, redeemed sinner. Without this work, sanctification, one is not saved nor may he consider himself to be saved. I remind you that in one of the quotations I made from the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession significantly used the phrase, quote, in this life, end quote, describing sanctification as God's work of making us holy, it added that he does this already in this life, Scripture declares the necessity of sanctification in salvation. 
exhorting the Hebrew Christians to, quote, follow holiness, end quote, the writer declares, quote, without which holiness no man shall see the Lord, end quote. Hebrews 12, verse 14. And that was the message here this past Sunday evening as well from 1 Corinthians 6. The unholy shall not inherit the kingdom of God. The reformed order of salvation of every human who is saved includes sanctification. Ultimately, the necessity of sanctification and of the resulting holiness of God's people is expressed by Peter in the passage we read, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Our God, the one true triune, living and only God, is a holy God. Therefore, his saved people must also be holy. His children must be like him. And therefore, he makes us holy. The necessity of holiness bears heavily on our assurance of our salvation. Just as without holiness no man shall see the Lord, so without holiness no man can be sure that he will see the Lord. Indeed, as long as one remains unholy, the unholy man or woman can only fear that he or she will not see the Lord. That holiness functions to assure us of our salvation is the testimony of the Canons of Dort in the fifth head, Article 10. I quote, Assurance of salvation. That's a precious thing. Assurance of salvation. Assurance of salvation springs from a serious and holy desire to preserve a good conscience and to perform good works." End of quote. This importance of sanctification raises the question, what exactly is this work of God in his people? In this life, as the Westminster Confession expresses, and the question more particularly, what is this work of God according to the Reformed and Presbyterian understanding of sanctification? <clears throat> that more particular form of the question is necessary because of the misunderstanding of many nominal Christians and because of the heretical teaching on sanctification many churches, we must ask the question, not only what is the truth of sanctification, but what is the reformed understanding of the truth of sanctification. I'm now merely going to outline the main aspects of sanctification according to the Bible with full knowledge that each of these aspects itself merits, indeed virtually demands, a full lecture or sermon in its own right. First, in light of Peter's relating our holiness to God's holiness, we must first of all view holiness in ourselves 
as God's own holiness shared with us in a creaturely measure. God's holiness radiating forth is His glory. He shares that glory with us by sharing His holiness with us. In God, holiness, a prominent perfection, some have said the predominant per perfection of God. In God, holiness is not only his separation from and detestation of sin, but also his consecration to himself as the only good one. Accordingly, in us, holiness is our spiritual separation from sin in hatred of it and our consecration of ourselves to God in love for God. Holiness, therefore, is not mere morality, abstaining from certain immoral deeds and observing a code of decent behavior. One can say, not very many anymore in this corrupt world, but some may say, I don't get drunk. I don't smoke. I don't cheat on my wife. And what he is saying is, I am a moral man. One thing he is not yet saying, I am a holy man. Mere morality is not the same as holiness. One can be moral in that sense without being devoted to God in love. Then abstaining from various sins out of love for God. Holiness is not primarily our activity at all. Our separating ourselves from wickedness and our devoting ourselves to God. But our holiness is this, that God delivers us from the world of iniquity, from everything and everyone that detests him and violates his goodness, and God consecrates us to himself. He gives us a new nature. He gives us a new being. He creates us as a new person. He gives us a sin-hating nature and a God-loving nature. And as much as God's holiness is his self-consecration in the fellowship of the Trinity, our holiness is essentially fellowship with God. Holiness is the love of God, and in this love, living with him in love. And this is the reality of the covenant of grace. Holiness has everything to do with the establishment and experience of the covenant of grace. We are consecrated to God so that we become his friend. We live with him in love for him. That's the essence of the covenant, communion with God in love. It was exactly this that Calvin's enemies 
noticed in him, because of which they called him, not well-meaningly, that God-intoxicated man. I do not know of a more glorious piece of praise. Oh, that everyone who sees us would be able even compelled to say of us, they are God-intoxicated people, a holy people. The separation from everything and everyone sinful is what the Dutch Reformed, especially, have called the antithesis. Basic to sanctification is the antithesis. That word refers to the spiritual separation between God's holy people and the unholy world. A separation of enmity. The antithesis is spiritual separation from sin and from the expression of sin in unholy humans and their evil deeds. The antithesis is the necessary implication and outworking of consecration to God. That this would be an important aspect of his saving work, God made plain immediately after the fall, in the first promise of salvation. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. That's a way of God saying, I am going to sanctify my chosen people who come from me in Jesus Christ. And in that holiness, there will be enmity, warfare between them, the church, and the seed of the devil, the wicked world. The truth that holiness as friendship with God implies hostility towards and separation from the wicked world is the teaching of James 4, verse 4. Quote, Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. End of quote. For this separation from the wicked world and this consecration to God, nothing less than a rebirth is required. And that's the second aspect of my explanation of sanctification. Regeneration. The beginning of sanctification, which is a union of us with the Holy God in Jesus Christ, so that I am born again, or born from above, we call regeneration. That was Jesus' word in John 3, verse 3. You must be born again, where the word means both again and from above. You must be born from above. You must be born again as a man or a woman who is holy with the holiness of God himself. 1 Peter 1, verse 3 is about holiness. 
mentions that, quote, we are begotten, God has begotten us again, end quote, or regenerated us. This rebirth or regeneration is first a radical spiritual change, second, the work of God on a man and not his own work, and third, the beginning of the divine work of sanctification. This new birth restores to a totally depraved sinner the image of God in which God made man in the beginning and which the race lost in the disobedience and fall of Father Adam. Sanctification is the work of God that remakes us in God's image. That's the glory of holiness. We show the image of God are glorious as he is glorious. The sanctified person resembles God, is like God, whereas before he or she resembled Satan. This image consists of knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. So radical, we must know this about ourselves, we know that we have been born again. The evidence of the new birth is love for God, hatred of sin, belief in Jesus Christ, all of those spiritual activities and experiences are the unmistakable fruit of regeneration. So radical is this change in us, so thoroughly does this change us, so much is it the case that regeneration gives us a new nature and makes us a new person, that the Bible describes it as God's creation of us, as new creatures. There is a deliberate comparison with the divine work of creating all things, especially humans, in the beginning, referring, of course, to Ephesians 2, verse 10, quote, we are his workmanship. I can't refrain from telling you the word in the Greek original, although I always hesitate to do something like that. Workmanship is the King James translation of this Greek word, and you'll recognize it when I say it. Poema. You are God's poema. You are God's poems. Isn't that a lovely thought? Doesn't that indicate our glory? God is some poet, and we are his poetry. And then the phrase that I'm interested in especially, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. We have been created again. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 12 teaches the same. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. We must know these marvels to be true of us. We must know ourselves to be such marvelous human beings. We can know this, and we must know this. There's no doubt that we believe in Jesus Christ, that believing we are spiritually alive any more than we doubt that we were once born physically and are now alive physically. 
notion that many reborn Christians go through much of their life doubting whether they were born again and are alive spiritually, that notion is as foolish as it is pernicious. Holy people are different, are distinctive, are beautiful, are honorable, are glorious creations of God. We must know this so that we thank God for what he has done for us. We thank him for our being what we are, that is holy, and for living according to what we are, that is a holy life. Knowing that we are holy demands that we have right knowledge of sanctification in this life, lest ignorance or error concerning sanctification produce despair or passivity. Here especially, the distinctive reformed truth of sanctification is of the essence. In this life, holiness is only a beginning. Indeed, even a very small beginning. Your holiness and mine, the holiness of Augustine, the holiness of Luther, the holiness of Calvin, the holiest of the holiest of all of the children of God, whom God knows, is not perfect in this life. That was really the teaching of John Wesley, which has made inroads widely in the British Isles as elsewhere. The good and necessary implication of Wesley's doctrine of salvation was perfectionism, the possibility of becoming perfectly holy in this life, and the need of every Christian to attain this perfection in this life. The Reformed doctrine condemns that teaching as false doctrine. Even though we have a new nature, we retain the old nature, which is totally depraved. Luther expressed that in the famous phrase, simul justus e peccator. At the same time, I am righteous and a sinner. Here, the seventh chapter of the book of Romans is of critical importance to our understanding the truth of sanctification. The old Apostle Paul, toward the very end of his life, who may very well have been the holiest child of God who ever lived, said about himself, good that I would, I do not. And the evil that I would not, that I do. Oh, wretched man that I am, not because of poverty or cancer or any other physical evil, but because of the sinfulness of his nature. The Reformed Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism teaches in question 60, that we are, quote, still inclined to all evil, end quote, as long as we live. In question 114, the same catechism passes this judgment upon us, a judgment that we personally
freely confess about ourselves. Tonight too, quote, even the holiest men, while in this life, have only a small beginning of obedience, end quote, to the law. There the German original should be translated very small. We have only a very small beginning of the new obedience. That's the first thing that the Reformed faith distinctively confesses about our sanctification. It is not perfect in this life. The second truth that the Reformed faith confesses about sanctification distinctively is that although our sanctification and holiness are only a beginning, our holiness, our new holy nature, is victorious. There's a lifelong, tremendous, often violent conflict in each child of God. A warfare between the sinful nature and the new holy nature. And in this warfare, the new man is victorious. There is no going on in sin impenitently in the sanctified child of God. When we do fall, and we do sometimes, we repent and pick up again our striving to live a holy life. A holy life that is even more devoted to God than it was before we fell because of our gratitude for his deliverance of us from that fall. Then a third aspect of sanctification that the Reformed faith emphasizes, truthfully, is that our sanctification applies to the whole of our life and not merely to certain parts of our life. The sanctified man is holy in his marriage and family. He is holy at church and at work. He is holy with regard to his eating and his drinking. He is holy with regard to his relations to his neighbors. He is holy with regard to his work and his business. He is holy on the job and he is holy on vacation. It isn't so about one whom God has sanctified, that he is holy on Sunday, but worldly on the weekdays. It isn't so that he treats his neighbors kindly in the public eye, but goes home to beat or otherwise mistreat his wife. It isn't the case about the holy child of God, that he reads the Bible and religious books on Sunday, but also amuses himself with pornography throughout the week. That's not a saint. That's a hypocrite. And then in the fourth place, regarding the distinctive reform view of sanctification, it is a work of God that causes the child of God himself to be active in the work. Intensely active, painfully active. And that's no contradiction of the truth that all our sanctification is the work of God. God does it. But he doesn't do it apart from our activity. 
He does it through our activity. And he does it by making us active in our sanctification. Be ye holy. That's an exhortation, as we read in 1 Peter chapter 1. The implication is not that the saving work of sanctification is cooperation. God does it and we, works with, we work with him in order to do it. Sanctification is certainly not an activity of ours upon which God's work depends. But rather, our activity is the manner of the working of God in sanctifying us all our life long. Verse 22 of 1 Peter 1, after the admonition, Be ye holy, continues, quote, Ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, end of quote, referring to our activity in our sanctification. Many passages in Scripture exhort us to practice and pursue holiness to sanctify ourselves. Truth that sanctification is God's work does not imply passivity. It itself is a work that affects our activity, even as the birth of a baby causes that baby to be active in the activity that develops the physical life of that infant. This is the marvelous, mysterious work of God called sanctification. And in that work, God uses means. To that now I direct our attention. The means that God uses. Surely we must be asking ourselves the question, how must I expect God to work this marvelous work of deliverance in me? This work of God in making me glorious and beautiful. The one who sanctifies is the Holy Spirit of the Godhead, the Spirit who became the Spirit of Jesus Christ upon Jesus' exaltation, and the Spirit who was poured out on the church on the day of Pentecost, according to Acts chapter 2. The Bible attributes to him, the Spirit, the work of sanctification. We read in 1 Peter 1 verse 22, we purify our souls through the Spirit. In John 17, Jesus' instruction concerning the coming of the Spirit culminates in the work of the Spirit of sanctifying the disciples. Only the Spirit can do this cleansing and consecrating. Therefore, Jesus told his disciples when they were sorrowing at his imminent departure from them, it's expedient that I go away. Because only then can the Spirit come to accomplish the work that is the goal of all of God's election and redemption, the goal of salvation. Only He, as Spirit, can penetrate into the innermost spiritual being of each of us. Only He can recreate us there. Only He can dwell in us. Not near us, but in us. Continuing and increasing the work of making us 
holy. From within us, the Spirit affects our thinking, our desiring, our feeling, our speech, and our actions. Only He, as the Holy One Himself, binds the Father and the Son together in their sweet communion, so affects us as to make us abhor what is evil and devote ourselves to the good who is God. It is this, namely, that the sanctifier is the Holy Spirit deep within us at the control center of our life that not only explains our holiness, but also the bitterest sorrow of our life. Ephesians 4 verse 30 warns us, Grieve not the Spirit of God. We do that, we grieve Him, we make Him sad, when we deliberately oppose His sanctifying work in us. There isn't anyone here including myself, who can even think I have never done this, deliberately opposed the sanctifying work of the Spirit. We, we've done that. We do that. We grieve Him. We willfully give ourselves over to unholiness whether that's a corrupted worship of God, a hatred of the neighbor, drunkenness, or any other disobedience to one of the commandments of God. But now remember, that spirit is in us intimately, in our heart, at the center of our life, the control center. And since he is in us so intimately, he makes us experience his grief when we deliberately oppose his sanctifying work. He grieves us by our grieving of him. That's the bitterest sorrow in the life of the child of God. That's not quite the same as the sorrow of repentance, although eventually that sorrow will lead to the sorrow of repentance, but that's the misery of the experience of God's disfavor with us, God's anger against us. That's the grief of David when he lived impenitently of his, in his sin of adultery and murder, as he describes it in Psalm 32. My bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. Day and night, my hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of sorrow. He was grieving the spirit. And grieving the spirit was grief for David. In the work of sanctification, the spirit uses means, and therefore instructs you and me to use these means. Those means are, first of all, the truth. With reference to the preaching of the truth of the gospel, including the truth of sanctification, by a sound minister. 1 Peter 1, verse 22, describes our purifying our souls in obeying 
the truth. God sanctifies by the truth of preaching truthfully of the gospel of the scriptures. This truth is confirmed to us by the sacraments so that the means of the spirit in sanctifying us include the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. This requires membership in a true instituted congregation. There is the truth. There are the sacraments. There is also discipline if we stray and fall from holiness of life. This truth that sanctifies is specifically the gospel of the blood of Jesus Christ. That is his redemptive death for elect sinners. Blood cleanses from sin. Only blood. Only the blood of Jesus. You can't help but think here of that famous passage in Shakespeare's Macbeth. After Lady Macbeth with her husband had killed the king, shed his blood with her own hands, washing her hands incessantly, day and night, and crying out, will these hands ne'er be clean? They never would be, as never will be cleaned the filth of any sin apart from the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9 verse 14 speaks of the blood of Christ which purges your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That shed blood obtained the right for us to be freed from the bondage of sin. And that shed blood is the power of sanctifying us so that we are delivered from the reigning power of sin. This cleansing with the blood by the Spirit, which takes place by means of the truth of the gospel, is received by us by faith in Jesus Christ. Justification is by faith alone. We have deliverance from the punishment of sin by faith alone. Sanctification is also by faith, and by faith alone. Acts 15 verses 8 and 9 teaches that God has given to the Gentiles the Holy Ghost, purifying their hearts by faith. Then there are additional helps to sanctification, dependent on the chief means. Our afflictions with their sufferings, are instruments of God for our sanctification, and not only the chastisements for our sins, but all kinds of problems and burdens and sorrows that God subjects his children to. For when we are afflicted, that affliction has been for our profit, as we sing in the Psalms. Our experience shows us how this is. Affliction loosens our attachment to this life and causes us to long for God and the resurrection of the body in the day of Jesus Christ. Prayer is also a means of sanctification. 
including the prayer, Lord, deliver me from this powerful sin that seems to have the mastery over me. Deliver me from it, that I may be holy, consecrated to thee. The fellowship of fellow saints is not an unimportant means that God uses for the sanctification of his people. That's true not only for children and young people, but that's also true for us grown-ups, and I may include such fellowship as we enjoy at these conferences. Nevertheless, in this life, sanctification is never perfect. It's only a beginning. But perfect salvation is certain for all in whom God has begun the work of sanctification. Our perfect sanctification is a certainty. It is made certain by the Father's election, by the Son's redemption, and by the Spirit's sanctifying power. One day we will be sinless. One day there will be no pollution of sin in our entire nature. One day we will be wholly consecrated to God. That too is assurance of salvation. Assurance of salvation for everyone in whom God has begun the work of making him holy. That's our assurance in the face of powerful, threatening powers of unholiness. That's our assurance in the struggles we have against our besetting sins. This is the truth of the preservation of the saints. Preservation of the saints does not merely mean that God will surely take us to heaven one day. The assurance of perseverance includes that God will perfect holiness in us when he takes to heaven one day. There is no falling away of the saints. That perfection will not take place in this life. Perfectionism is a gross heresy. The teaching that we can and should be perfect in this life throws all of the saints who recognize themselves anyway into despair. This is no minimizing of the seriousness of our imperfection or weakening of our efforts for progress in holiness. But it is an important truth. Perfection does not happen in this life, but perfection is reserved for the coming of Jesus Christ. We obtain this perfection in the soul at the moment of death. That's why death, another reason why death is not terrifying to the child of God. And even though it may be too much to say that one hopes for death, it is not too much to say that one hopes for that which he will enjoy immediately upon death and in the way of death. Perfect holiness in the soul. And then in the day of Jesus Christ at the resurrection of the body, the body will share in that perfection. The Heidelberg Catechism has this line, till we arrive at the perfection proposed to us in a life to come. End quote. Question 115. Perfection, therefore, is our Christian hope. This sustains us on our deathbed. This inspires our longing for the second coming of Jesus Christ. 
Come, Lord Jesus, for our perfect holiness, that is, our perfect salvation from sin. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hope PR Ministry Podcast. We are a part of the Protestant Reformed Churches in America, and we are located in West Michigan. Our goal is to spread our distinctive Reformed beliefs. If you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to reach out to us at hoperwc at gmail.com and visit our website at hopeprchurch.org if you would like to learn more about our beliefs. You can also worship with us every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 5 p.m.